Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to uh, Acts chapter 9, Acts 9, 19 to 31. I thought the uh, choice of songs today was remarkable in light of uh, the passage, one we sang one or two ago. In the waiting, the same God who's never late is working all things out, is working all things out. That's my sermon. (laughs) Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, uh, sometimes it feels like you're late. Sometimes it feels like your timing is so not our timing. And yet if we're walking in obedience and we're desiring to be impacted by you, We ask that you would give us patience and to see things with a larger vision, to see what you're doing, how you're shaping, how you're moving on our behalf. Father, as we look at Saul, Paul today, and the waiting, excruciating waiting that he endured before you used him mightily. Allow that to instruct us, even encourage us, maybe give us new eyes on what you're doing in our lives. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. In 1967, a young girl drove into the Chesapeake Bay. She was an athletic gal and She had swam there before, but she dove in such a way and in such a place that the next thing she knew when she awoke, she was strapped to a gurney and she could no longer feel her arms, feel her legs. She would, from that day forward, be a quadriplegic. She talks about that event in different perspective today, even though her pain has increased than she did a number of years ago. She said that she was a self-absorbed, Christ-following teenager. Those are her words, not mine. She was concerned that God might get in the way. She knew what God required, but she wondered if God would get in the way based on her career choices. If God would get in the way in her dating processes, if God would get in the way in pursuit of her joy and her recreation, she had God boxed. She knew what God wanted and was concerned that God's desires for her life might be quite different than her desires for her own life. But all that changed in 1967. When she dove into water that was too shallow and it took her ability to walk or move her arms, she talked in these terms, she now had a helpless body. She said, all I had left was a relationship with God. And I never envisioned that that a relationship with God would get to the depth that it would or that it would be enough and even more than enough. She actually uses the word luxury. 
And I don't mean that insultingly if you have suffered greatly, but she said God had given her the luxury of reaching ground zero with him. Because she had such a helpless body and because it was God that was going to make her beautiful, it was God that was going to make her useful. She said, I had to depend on God and I discovered he was not only enough, but he was more than enough. And of course, she has gone on, Joni Erickson Tata, to international fame. She has created Johnny and friends. She has impacted thousands, if not tens of thousands of individuals who suffer on a regular daily basis and helped them help us to see the sovereignty of God and how God works even in the midst of tragedy and trial and tempest. I don't think for a moment that Joni would be thankful that she can't use her limbs, but what she is thankful for is that because of that, she has seen more God than she would have. She has experienced more God than she ever imagined capable, and she has found God to be enough. In the waiting, the same God who is never late is working all things out. He's working all things out. I want to read to you part of a poem. Actually, as I have it written, I have the whole poem down, but I decided this morning that I didn't like the first three lines, even though I had altered them, which I don't think is even allowed. So I'm not even going to read the first three lines. I'm going to start halfway through the poem because I think it's more orthodox than the first three. How God painfully perfects whom he royally elects. How God molds her and allows her within her and with wounding blows converts her. How God bends us, but us he never breaks for it is with good will that he undertakes. Into his image us he does mold to curb our wills into his fold and his work is always for our best. In such peaceful assurance, we must learn to rest. The context of today's passage is Paul coming to Christ on the road to Damascus. You remember, he was on his way to Damascus, Syria. He had letters from the high priests and from the royal officials. He was either a member of the Sanhedrin or he was commissioned by the Sanhedrin. We know him to be a Pharisee for sure. And he is going to Damascus 150 miles by foot in order to arrest individuals who are following the way, who are following Christ, and he has this vision of Christ. And we, he, one abnormally born, that is the born too late to have seen the Christ, Christ comes back, sees him, he is radically converted, and he comes to Christ. And of course, immediately, he wants to impact the world for Christ. But he doesn't. He astounds, he confounds, he brings forth angry mobs, the church is divided, he has to be shipped off, he has to flee for his life, and it will be 13 years, 13 long, hard, 
lonely, dark years before he's mightily used by the king. Let me pick up in Acts 9. I want to start in verse 19, the second part of it, and I'll read all the way to 31. For some days he, Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. They said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded. I don't think that means confused here. I think that means he has superior arguments and he overwhelms the Jews with his argument. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, I'm gonna argue that that's actually three years, that that's Galatians 1, Verses 15 to 18. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, now he's going to meet the other apostles, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that is the Greeks, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea. That would be Caesarea Maritima. That would be, they took him to the Mediterranean up north and sent him off to Tarsus. <laughs> That's Turkey. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. As you and I begin... The text tells us in verses 19 to 21, Saul, Paul comes to Christ and he begins to preach and everyone was amazed. Now I find that initially to be encouraging, but the more I think about the text, the less encouraged I am. It's actually not until verse 31, after Saul is shipped off to Tarsus, that we hear that the church expands. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, and we're all growing in our familiarity with it, we know that Luke, who writes Acts, always gives us, or often gives us, numbers. He tells us how many people came to Christ, how many people are growing up in Christ. He's not afraid of numbers. And so, if you're keeping score right now, it says that Paul preached, everyone was amazed. It says nothing about someone coming to Christ. It says nothing about disciples. So if I just take it at face value, the box score right now is new convert zero, disciples zero, 100% amazed. When you get to verse 21 and 22, he continues to argue to the Jews and we have a new box score, zero converts that are known, zero disciples that are known, and everyone is confounded. 
And then towards the end of the chapter, we have zero converts, zero disciples, and an entire mob is angry. And he has to be shipped off to Tarsus. Is that the way you want to start your Christian walk? You come to Christ, you're preaching boldly, you're confounding, you're amazing, but nobody seems to be coming to Christ. Nobody seems to be discipled in Christ. And actually, they're going to be so unruly that you'll become a basket case, lowered in a basket, running away, on your way to Tarsus of Turkey. I know, a dad joke. It's really bad. I think what's going on is this. He has an amazing testimony. He has an amazing education. He comes with an education, having studied under the grandson of Hillel, Gamaliel. He has the best education money can afford. Whatever you think the best education in the Western world is, he had it in Israel. He was a disciple of the greatest rabbi of his day. And he has this incredible, I mean, spellbounding type of testimony. Everyone is amazed. He can argue, he can confound them, and yet no one is coming to Christ. It kind of reminds me of what happens when some individuals go to seminary. You go to college for four years, and then you go to grad school for another three or four years of seminary. So you got eight years post high school, and you come out and you think you are going to turn the world upside down. And nobody except you thinks you're any good. It's kind of what happens. You might have incredible education. You might have answers that nobody is asking questions to. But you're not sure how to relate. You might confound people. You might amaze people. But God's spirit is not yet working in and through you as much as he will because God is seasoning you, God is maturing you, God is putting you on the altar, on the anvil, and he's shaping and molding and making you into what he desires you to be. Now Paul will be used mightily. He's gonna write 13 books of Holy Scripture guided by the Holy Spirit I think he will impact no less than 60 churches as I read the New Testament. He is truly going to be the second most influential person besides Christ in the Western world in the last 2,000 years. And yet, not yet. In fact, I think we're going to go 10 to 13 years before he has a great impact on the world, God is going to mold him. God is going to shape him. I think we have three years in Arabia between verses 22 and 23. Let me read about that time period. He writes about it in Galatians. That was his first book that's recorded in scripture. And in Galatians 1, 15 to 18, he says this. But when he who had set me apart, Jesus, before I was born, who called me by his grace. That's the phrase, I was abnormally born. So this is actually tied in to the exact account we're reading in Acts 9. He was pleased to reveal his son to me on the road to Damascus in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. 
he figured he already had a world-class Old Testament education. He had a world-class testimony. He knew how to preach. He knew how to get in and out of synagogues. He didn't need to consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem. I didn't ask permission of the apostles. I didn't seek their insights. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that would be Peter, and remain with him 15 days. So, so far, Paul is amazed, he's confounded. Luke, who always keeps score, doesn't keep score. So if there's converts, we don't know of them. If there's disciples, we don't know of them. But we know that he is going to result in an angry mob and he is going to have to flee for his life. Many days have passed. These are lonely days. God sends him out to the Arabian desert. He's at the foot of Mount Sinai. What an education. Oh, he had this education from Gamaliel, but this is a different type of education. Not only is he in the lonely desert, but he is at the foot of Sinai. Think of what happens in Sinai. God gives Moses the law. Well, who's an expert at the law? Saul. So he doesn't need to learn about the law, but he does need to learn about application and grace. Who else was at Sinai? The great reformer, Elijah. The application that he needs. And what does Saul desperately need? Grace. And he learns from the law that you have to apply it the reformer of Elijah, and you need to live in grace. That was the lesson that he learned at Sinai. Saul was being prepared. In fact, at the end of his life, I think it's AD 65, he will die, he will be a martyr in AD 66. He will make this statement. He will say to us uh, that you cannot place confidence in an early convert. Let me listen to you, or let me read it to you. 1 Timothy 3, 6. He must not be a recent convert. That is somebody being placed in a position of authority. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He had a testimony. He had personal confidence. He had an education. But he wasn't ready for the limelight or he would have been puffed up. The devil would have attacked him and he would have fallen. So at the end of his life, God leads him to give that advice to all of us that when we come to Christ, we need to be seasoned, matured, and then we will be used mightily by the Lord. But it takes a little bit of time. I thought of a rather silly story. It's of a, a new convert. He came to Christ. He didn't have a lot of education in his background, but he was a go-doer or go-getter. And when he came to Christ, he said to the pastor, hey, I need a role. I need something to do. What do you want me to do for the kingdom? That's a great question to ask. And so finally, the pastor said, I'll tell you what I'd like you to do. I'm going to give you some paper and I'm going to give you some envelopes and I'm going to give you some stamps. I'd like you to write a note from the church office to all those who have kind of fallen away from the church, just kind of inviting them back. Seemed like a task he could do. 
Well, a few weeks later, the pastor, he got a note and it said this, dear pastor, we received the note from your office. My wife and I will be in church this Sunday. We promise. Uh, P.S., please tell the one who wrote it, there are not two T's in dirty and there is no C in skunk. Well, obviously a little bit of seasoning needed to happen in this young man's life. That's what happens in Saul, Paul's life. Is it unique to him? Think of Moses. If we really are careful with the life of Moses, we have 40 years where he lives in Pharaoh's house and he gets married and has some life. We have 40 years where he is in the midnight desert working for his father-in-law Jethro and then God uses him mightily. It's not right away. Think of Jesus. I want to be careful here, but scripture actually does say that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. He was always perfect, never sinned. But it wasn't until he was 30 that his public ministry began. And then when his public ministry began, how did it begin? He went out in the desert for 40 days, fasting and praying and communing with the Father. That's how it began. Think of Joseph of Genesis. This was a young boy who obviously was brilliant, but he was a little puffed up. Maybe the favoritism of his father did not help him out that much. And his older brothers, in an act of evil, but God used for good, Genesis 50, 20, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God can use evil. He will never cause it. He will never will it, but he can use it. He used it in the life of Joseph and he sold into slavery and then he serves in the house of Potiphar and he rises in the house of Potiphar. Then he is falsely accused. Then he has a stint in the big house and then, and then God begins to use him mightily. I think we could make that case in the life of Daniel who was carried into slavery during the 70 year captivity, he is a slave and then he has to work his way up the ladder on the anvil that God uses to mold him, to shape him, to mature him, to strengthen him. And I think for those individuals in scripture that we have a lot of information of their life, we can see this over and over again. Peter puts it this way. First Peter chapter one, six and seven. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, things are not going well, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. And we think, come on, Paul, sometimes the affliction is not light, it's not momentary, but he's going to compare it to eternity. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God often uses the difficulties in our lives, not the difficulties we cause because of our sin, but other difficulties that he allows as he puts us on the anvil to shape us, to mold us, to mature us, that we might become all that God desires us to be. That's what God did with Paul. And remember, the result is during this time, he has to actually flee, go to Tarsus in Turkey, where he will essentially disappear from the pages of Scripture for 10 years. 10 years. And it still gets a little worse. Let me go back to our text. Let me read verses 26 to 28 again. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. As far as the apostles are concerned, Saul, Paul, after several years, I think three years, he is still the Sadducees hatchet man in their eyes. They believe that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. They're not willing to test or believe that God has changed his life. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that? God is doing a great work in your life and nobody believes it. That's painful. That's what's going on in his life. God is doing a great work and the apostles, they don't believe it. They think he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. They don't really trust him. He's getting shot at from both sides. It's kind of like a man in the Civil War who decided to be neutral and he wears Yankee pants and the Confederate shirt and everyone shoots at him. The Jews hate him. He's confounding them and the Christians, they don't believe him. It's kind of like being a Chicago Bear and Green Bay Packer fan. How can evil dwell with goodness? You can't really have the two together. And that's what's going on in our text. Yet Barnabas, the church, the world needs more Barnabas types. The ones that don't leave us in the past, but bring us to the future. Before coming to Highland, I considered going on staff with the church I grew up in. And I candidated there and they introduced me as a boy who used to swing on the chandelier. <laughs> we don't have any chandeliers, I did not do that. But at that moment, it was before I preached. At that moment, I said to myself, I'm not coming back. I will not come back because the church doesn't believe that I can grow. But Barnabas. But Barnabas comes in and Barnabas sees the possibilities. And Barnabas risks his own reputation. He takes him up. He takes Saul up to Jerusalem. And you can imagine the conversation. Hey, Philip, come out from under the couch. He's safe. You can do this. And he's, he's trying to talk the apostles into giving Saul, Paul, another chance. Can you imagine what the conversation is like? 
hey, uh, apostles, remember, we preach that God changes lives. Uh, this is a changed life. You can trust it. No, no, no. God doesn't change people like Saul Paul. Yeah, he does. And he did. And so Barnabas, the son of encouragement man, risked his life. And so think of how Saul is doing. He's astounding people. He's confounding people. We have angry mobs from people. The church is not growing. And you have to have an intermediary named Barnabas to even introduce you to the apostles. And finally, things get so bad that the church ships him off to Tarsus in Turkey. They take him up to Caesarea Maritime. They say, get on the, the boat and away he goes for 10 years. And then, then you read verse 31. Talk about a backhanded insult. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We have no word of conversions, no word of disciples. We have angry mobs. We have apostles who are terrified. We need to ship this man away. And then there's peace, calmness, and the church grows. That's painful. And if my math is right, it's 13 years. In fact, Paul will tell us in Galatians 1 that the church in Judea, they don't even know who I am. The second most influential man in the Western world, they didn't even know who Saul Paul was. They knew his reputation. They didn't know him because he had been shipped out. And maybe that's what God does to some of us. Maybe there are times in our lives we're available. We know we have a spiritual gift, but a spiritual gift, teaching, ministration, mercy, helps, evangelism, service, giving, leading worship, all these things, they're the capacity, the capacity to bring glory to God's name and to serve the church. And sometimes God needs us a little bit in the background, a little bit on the anvil, going through the tests and the trials. And rather than seeing every test and trial, oh, not the ones I caused through my own sin, but other tests and trials as the enemy, maybe I need to see them as a friend. That God is molding me, much like he molded Joni Erickson Tata, who went from a self-centered teenager to a international platform to minister to others. She wouldn't have chosen the anvil. Who would? But we're never sure what God is doing in his timing. What was that song we sang in the waiting? The same God is never late. He's working all things out. He's working all things out. I think of Isaiah 55, 8, where God says that his thinking, his understanding is not our thinking. It's not our understanding. And our ways are not his, says the Lord of hosts. And so if you're on the anvil, you keep pressing forward. 
You keep pushing forward because God has something on the horizon if we allow the testing and trial to build something within us for his glory. We serve through it, but imagine what God might do on the other side of it. Imagine what he did in the life of Saul Paul. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the life of Saul Paul who really went through some trying times, difficult times, challenging times, and yet you molded him, you shaped him, you made him into what you desire, and then you unleashed him. And Father, it might be that some of us are on the anvil and you're molding and shaping us. And it might be that some of us are called to be Barnabases to come alongside someone who has a dark past and to say, you know, that's who you were, that's not who you are in Christ. And walk hand by hand, shoulder to shoulder to help somebody with a dark past to see a bright, empowered future. Father, help us to be like that, like a Barnabas, and help us to be patient in the midst of our service. If at this time you're putting us on the anvil and you're slowing us down, mold us and shape us and let us rejoice in what you develop us, mature us, shape us to be. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.